Welcome to this Forthright Radio for April 14th, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. You may recall the horrifying news that hit the airwaves on March 26, 2018, about a van that had driven off the 100-foot cliff on Highway 1 just south of Juan Creek between Rockport and Westport on the north coast of Mendocino County, California. Bad as the initial reports were, as more was learned about what had actually happened and what led up to it, our horror only grew. Our guest today on Forthright Radio, Texas-based journalist Roxana Asgarian, began investigating the tragedy within a day. Her investigations since have resulted in her book, We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America published a month ago by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. She writes it as the true crime story that it certainly is, but her primary goal was to uncover the untold stories of the birth families of the six black children taken from their families who did not want to give them up and were making efforts to keep them when the deeply flawed child welfare system thrust them first into the foster care system and then fast-tracked them into out-of-state adoptions. Roxana Asgarian reports about courts and the law for the Texas Tribune. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Magazine, and Texas Monthly, as well as other publications. She received the 2022 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award for We Were Once a Family. It goes well beyond the earlier sensationalist reportage of the mainstream press to delve into the systems and history that allowed this murder-suicide to happen. We spoke with Roxana Asgarian via Skype on April 10th, 2023. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Roxana Asgarian. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Roxana, you began investigating and writing about the U.S. foster care system back in 2016 because of a federal lawsuit against the state of Texas for its inhumane treatment of children in long-term foster care. You discovered a lot about the child welfare system, and it raised questions that you've been trying to answer ever since. Then, on March 26th, 2018, the news that a Yukon van had plummeted off a large lookout just south of Juan Creek between Rockport and Westport in Mendocino County, California, killing two women and their six adopted children hit the airwaves. Initial reports were horrifying and confusing. At first, it wasn't even clear how many children were involved, then quickly became sensationalized in the popular press. Share with our listeners as you do in your book, We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America, what those early hours and days involved as efforts evolved to deal with the situation. And then we'll get into how your approach to investigating the bigger picture behind these events differs from the mainstream. When the crash happened, it was, as you said, really horrifying. All eight members of the family were presumed to be dead, although there were three children who were still 
missing, whose bodies were missing. And the crash itself was a difficult scene for first responders because the cliff was like 100 feet and it required a whole team effort to get the car back up the hill and also to try to figure out what was going on. And I think in those early moments, the investigators noticed that there were no skid marks on the road where the car left the road. And there was like an 18-inch berm on the side of the cliff to keep the, the sort of accidents like this from happening. So the idea started to form that this might not have been an accident. And the family at the time was living in Washington State. So when they got in touch with officials up there, they realized that CPS, Child Protective Services, had stopped by the family's house to initiate an investigation for abuse and neglect. And so a picture started to emerge in those early days that this wasn't the typical happy family with a tragic accident, and it might be something more sinister. One of the things that I appreciate about your work is that you take extraordinary effort to investigate the actual history, the leading up to what happened, at the same time using a perspective of what's wrong with this picture here? How did this actually even happen? And you approach the birth families of these children and you gain their trust, which was not easy to do because the stories of how these children were taken from their birth families in Texas, let's say, and then shipped up to Minnesota. Would you share with our listeners how you began this search? And then we'll get into what you discovered. Sure. Um, so, as you said, I had been reporting on the child welfare system for a couple years at that time. And I was also, I was a freelance journalist uh, living and working in Houston, Texas. So I got a freelance breaking news assignment from the daily newspaper in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon, the Oregonian. They had found a public document, which is very rare in child welfare cases because everything, most everything is sealed. But they had found a public document with the names of some of the birth family members of three of the children because there were six kids, but they came from two separate sibling groups. And so that was my assignment was to go and knock on their door and see if I could get a quote from them about what had happened. But when I got there, I realized, first of all, that I was the only reporter around, which is sort of rare for breaking news stories that have the nation's attention. You know, you often see a bunch of reporters doing these breaking news type assignments. So the other thing was that they let me into their homes and they told me the backstory and it felt immediately to me like an injustice. And it also felt like an aspect of the story that wasn't really getting. So we did those initial stories. And then this story took off in the sort of true crime realm. And all those stories were really skipping over <laughs> what I thought to be a very central part of the story, which was how the kids ended up with the hearts in the first place, and also how the system enabled this to happen in various ways and in various different states and locations. So that became something that I just couldn't set down. 
And there were many ways that it kept unfolding, that the story kept unfolding with various family members from both birth families. And it just seemed to me like the aspects of the story that I thought were most pertinent to actually maybe changing things or making a difference were those that were being deleted from this very sensationalistic narrative of the crime itself. Well, Roxana, why don't we clarify for our listeners? You mentioned that it was six children from two sibling groups. Let's explain to our listeners a bit about that. Who were these children? And then we'll get into their families. The Davis family sibling group, as I think of them, is Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. And they were born and raised in Houston, Texas, before they were adopted to the Hearts. And the other sibling group is Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail. And they were born in Corpus Christi and in Columbus, Texas, which is about an hour west of Houston. And they lived with their mom, Tammy, before they were removed and adopted to the Hearts. What I learned from your book is that there are so many different kinds of abuses that occur. And the general idea is that we want to protect children. And systems have evolved to nominally try to do that. But in the process, it's very questionable whether the children are in fact being served. And your investigation really sheds light on that. Let's talk about the Davis family, even though they were the second group that Jennifer and Sarah Hart adopted. Let's begin with a bit of the history and and how it came that the children were taken from their family. As you said, they were the second group of siblings to be adopted, but they were the first family that I became involved with in the case. And there was a lot of documentation around their story, which as an investigative journalist helped me to really ascertain what happened at the removal stage. So The three kids, Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra, they actually had an older brother whose name was Dante. So there was a a sibling group of four originally. And their mother, Sherry, had a drug problem, a cocaine addiction, and that put her on CPS's radar when she gave birth to Jeremiah, and they both tested positive for cocaine. The kids had, since their birth, been raised primarily by a man named Nathaniel Davis, who wasn't their birth father, but he was Sherry's partner, long-term partner. He was a much older man, and he was devoted to the kids. He was sober, and he got disability payments. And so he was a stable guy, but Sherry was less stable, and she was sort of in and out of the home. So when Jeremiah tested positive on birth, They basically transferred custody to Nathaniel, which was essentially what he was doing already. And when she had Sierra, she tested positive. Not Sierra was negative, but Sherry tested positive for cocaine again. And they removed the kids from Nathaniel, even though Nathaniel was sober and was their primary caretaker. They entered foster care, essentially. And then they reunited to be with their aunt Priscilla. And their aunt Priscilla was a really upstanding lady. She had a full-time job at a hospital. She loved to go to church. And she had the kids and wanted to adopt the kids. She moved into a bigger house for the kids, a bigger apartment, that is. And ultimately, she lost the children because she was unable to find childcare one day and asked their mother 
to watch them while she went to work. And that day, a caseworker stopped by (laughs) unannounced. And because the mom had terminated her rights in order for the aunt to adopt the kids, because you have to, that's part of the process. She wasn't allowed to be around them. And they immediately removed the kids on the spot that day. And they never were returned to their family again. Now, as you mentioned, their aunt, Priscilla Celestine, was able and willing to take the children and was trying to adopt them. The mother, Sherry, had, quote unquote, voluntarily terminated her rights because they were told that that would allow Priscilla to do the adoption. But that's not how it turned out. And their elder brother, Dante, was not included in any of these proceedings, right? Right, right. When the kids were removed from Priscilla, Dante was 10 years old and he was acting out. He was really upset about the removals. He had been already bounced around several times at this point, And he just had a, a feeling that he wasn't going to see his siblings again. And because of his behavior, his acting out behaviors, his level of care was raised to, he basically entered an institution for several years where he lived with other high behavioral needs kids who were in foster care. And he was never put up for adoption, although his siblings were listed for adoption as a group. The younger children were really quite young. I think the youngest was a year and a half or something. Yeah, Sierra was a toddler, and Jeremiah was just a year older than her, and Devante or five. As you mentioned, Sherry relinquished her rights, and that's because CPS had told her that she is no longer on the reunification track, meaning they are not actively trying to get her kids back into her care. And so that shifts them to the termination track. But since Priscilla, who was their aunt, was willing and able to adopt, Sherry thought that that was a good idea, right? That was her best option. But what they don't tell you is that when you give up your rights or when your rights are terminated, you have absolutely no say anymore in what happens to your children. And they won't tell you anything either because you're now legally severed from your child. This happened in actually in both cases where the idea that the mom thought the conditions that the mom gave their rights up were different than like what they thought was going to happen was not what ended up happening in both cases with the birth mothers. And that speaks to the fact that really in the eyes of the courts, when you terminate, you are no longer. And in, and in many places, when you terminate, not only are the parental rights terminated, but the kinship Your kinship placements, which means family members, those are no longer considered. You no longer have to give them a preference because they're no longer legally kin. This is all taking place in Texas. Is this particular to Texas or is this in general how it works? This is in general how it works in most places. And every state and some even counties have their own child welfare systems. So it's a patchwork system and they all have variations right, on their rules and procedures. But overall, there was a landmark case out of Washington State, actually, just a couple years ago, where a judge ruled that even if parents' rights are terminated, 
their kin still need to be considered as kin. And that was a pretty big statement from the judge. And it also made clear that this was happening not just in Texas, but in other states as well. Perhaps we should delve a bit into the history of this, which you do in a, in a relatively short chapter in your book, We Were Once a Family. But I think it's important to review it. For example, you talk about 19th century, where children were just, if they didn't have people caring for them or they were neglected, they were just on the streets. And Charles Loring Brace in New York City created the Children's Aid Society to try to deal with that. What do you wish us to know about that beginning of the institutionalization of dealing with children? Yes. As you said, when the American cities became industrialized and immigration exploded here in the States, there was a big poverty problem. And there were a lot of kids who were on the streets. Many of them were in were kind of thrown in prison. And this was just like adult prison at the time. So Charles Loring Brace, his idea was that we have all of these quote unquote orphans. And I put the quotes around that because many of these kids were not orphans. They were just living in families who were experiencing dire poverty. So he said, well, why don't we ship them from here where there's too many of these kids on the streets, as he said at the time, and ship them around the country to places where people might want to take in kids. And so those were the orphan trains. And those kids went all around the Midwest, sometimes even further. And sometimes the parents in the in those places wanted an adopted adoptive child. And sometimes they wanted some labor for their farms. And in either case, that was like, okay, as long as they signed a paper saying that they would take care of these kids. But what often happened was those kids kind of got lost. So some of them had an okay time and some of them had a really bad time. And it seemed that no one really checked up on them either way. And then there was the post-Civil War black codes. Yeah. I think Dorothy Roberts, who is a legal scholar who is extremely knowledgeable about the child welfare system and especially the history of racism in the child welfare system. She is the place to go to learn all about this. But essentially... After slavery, there was basically widespread indentured servitude of black children in white families that was legally allowed and protected. And it essentially allowed white families to take black children from their homes in order to work for them. (laughs) And their parents weren't able to say no, essentially. I remark the work of Benjamin Madley in California as the genocide against the indigenous people here was happening, it was very common for the children to be enslaved by white families in California. But that's a that's an aside. But what it brings up is the racial and the economic realities that continue to this day, the confusion of neglect and poverty. And you explore this in your book, Roxana Asgarian. Talk about that nexus. Yeah, the vast majority of investigations initiated by CPS are for neglect and not abuse. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't really realize. There's a lot of stigma that's attached to CPS being involved with a family. 
we have a lot of ideas about what kind of people would be involved with CPS. But the reality of it is that most, almost all families who are involved with CPS are living in poverty. And we know that actual abuse doesn't only happen in poor homes, right? It happens across the board. We know that. But we don't see CPS really interfering in middle-class homes, regardless of what's going on in them, right? So poverty and neglect can be confused for one another because the inability to meet a child's basic needs often stems from the lack of resources. So housing instability is a big reason. Even domestic violence, where there's a male perpetrator and the mom and the kids just can't afford to leave or don't have the resources to get out. If you can't pay your light bill or if you don't have food in the fridge, like these are reasons that CPS will come in. But what parents really need in those situations is more resources. (laughs) Like the lack of resources is what's harming the child, right? Not the parent themselves. And that's a distinction that needs to be made because CPS actually doesn't provide that kind of support to parents. When CPS gets involved, they're very often making a dire situation worse from the eyes of the parent. Roxana, you already mentioned Dorothy Roberts' work, and you cite her book, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare. And you bring up the concept of abolition, which is becoming more and more discussed, not just in terms of child welfare, but domestic violence and the prisons, for example. And you talk about non-reformist reforms and a radical reimagining of what support for parents actually is. Let's just talk about that for a short bit. Doing this reporting on the child welfare system, it's clear that there's a a huge body of research that shows that kids do best with their parents. Their outcomes are much better when they stay at home. And if they can't stay at home with their parents, they do best when they're with their family members. And that's widely understood to be true across the, the child welfare system. Most child welfare system agencies have a mandate or at least a policy to show preference to reunification, and if not reunification, placement with kin. We know that that's the best for kids, but we consistently choose other policies that make it harder for parents to reunite with their kids and make it harder for kinship placements to be successful. For instance, they have, like in Texas here where I live, foster parents are paid monthly more than twice the amount that kinship placements are paid to care for the same kid. So that's a de facto preference for foster parents over kinship placements. There's lots of policies that are exactly like this that basically show that although we know what's best for kids, we often do the opposite. And I think A major reason is because the system itself is punitive. It's set up to punish parents for noncompliance. My understanding of abolition around what punitive systems do rather than supportive systems, like when I was able to sort of grasp the idea of that, it makes so much sense, so much more sense to me that we would choose to do, to put in place policies like For instance, the child tax credit that was instituted during the pandemic, 
there's all this research that shows how successful that was at lifting kids out of poverty, how it actually reduced instances of abuse and neglect. We have ways to support families in poverty, but we choose to punish them instead. And we're not just punishing the parents, we're punishing the kids because foster care is a really dangerous place for a kid. And foster youth have a litany of outcomes that are dire, right? The odds are stacked against them. And so I feel like if we were able to reimagine a system that was less focused on punishing parents and more focused on supporting the families, we would do the children themselves such a service. And after all, ostensibly, that is the whole point. We are speaking with Roxana Asgarian about her book, We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. Roxana, there are localized efforts to reimagine how to deal with the issues of drug abuse among parenting and keeping families together. And I just want to share an example. In Montana, among the Crow Indians, there's an organization, Mountain Shadow Association, and it's a lodge grass community-based nonprofit focused on repairing and restoring relationships between children and their parents citizens and their community, families and their culture, individuals and their environment. Their mission is to support their citizens through their own healing as members of the larger community family until every absoluca child is raised in a home of abundant peace and well-being. So obviously that's their press release. But I love that. <laughs> let me just share with you an example of one of the ways they actually put this in action. They have a residential treatment facility for the parents to try to rehabilitate from drug dependency. And the model is the parents are in one wing and their children are in another wing of the same building so that they can meet and be together, but also be protected while this process is going on. And it's a small example, but and unfortunately, they have to raise their own funds and all they're not getting. I don't believe they're getting state support for this, but I, I'm not totally sure about that. But anyway... To me, this is a model that would actually serve the whole community. Once these children, they're taken from their families and put in foster care until age 18, and then they're just let loose in the community, traumatized and... And unsupported because they don't have... There's so many ways that what we do to foster kids really removes their ability to be resilient because we take them away not just from their parents, but from their communities and their teachers and their friends. And that's really isolating. <laughs> and they're dealing with the trauma of their separation from their family, but they're also dealing with the isolation. I want to say something because I what this program that you mentioned, I think that another major piece of the history of the child welfare system involves the U.S. government's removal of Native children from their homes and communities and the, the residential boarding school era and the Indian Adoption Project where they 
sought white families to take Native children. I think that's a huge part of the history of the child welfare system. And I also feel that Native people are at the really leading edge of figuring out ways to repair that harm and to give their children who have been removed a chance to find their way back to their communities. Yes, and there's actually pushback from that, the efforts of the Indian Child Welfare Act to prioritize children who need to be separated from their birth mothers, fathers, to keep them within their tribal structure. There is a case that you mention in your book, Brackeen versus Holland, that was heard before the Supreme Court in the fall of 2022, and the Supreme Court will deliver some sort of judgment on it by July 1st when the term ends. But essentially, it's white adoptive families pushing back claiming that their constitutional rights were violated and that the Tenth Amendment was violated by the federal government superseding state structures. We can't go into it now, but I just want to alert our listeners that this is happening and the consequences could actually be very dire beyond just the individual children involved. This also would radically change the relationship between the sovereign indigenous nations and the federal and states governments. Like I said, it's not appropriate to go into it more deeply. But let's get back to talking about the orphan trains of the 19th century and the pipeline between the Texas adoption system and sending children from Texas, no matter the time of year, to places like Minnesota and Wisconsin, where, let's face it, the climate is very different, and the isolation that that involves, there's actually a sort of a pipeline going on there. Am I pushing that too far, Roxana? Yeah, I think that there I mean, I spoke with the judge who was involved in part of the Davis family's case, and he said Minnesota has been really helpful in providing adoptive parents for kids in Texas. So I do think it's not fully clear how many of these adoptions happen, but there's a website, the Texas Adoption Resource Exchange, and that's where they basically advertise children who are open for adoption. And I think in the Hart's case, because they targeted sibling groups, those are really hard to place in adoptive homes because there's, you know, there's multiple children and each child really has their own trauma history and developmental level, right? So like adopting siblings is really tough and therefore not very many people are open to doing it. And so I think that's partly why the Hart women got such a kind of like a fast track process was because they were taking kids that were typically seen as hard to place in adoptive homes. That being said, at least in the Davis family's case, they weren't keeping all of the siblings together. (laughs) You see what I mean? And also um, the idea of like two sets of three siblings in a mixed age range, right? So there's like two of them were the same age, for instance. That's really challenging. It's it's basically extremely challenging for even the most prepared and well-resourced caregiver. And so the idea of fast-tracking adoptions to people who are already taking on 
a huge load, that didn't seem to factor in to any of the decisions. Also, there's the fact that between the first adoption and the second adoption, the first allegation of abuse was made against the parents. So despite that, the second adoption went through. And that adoption of the Davis kids went through while the aunt was still appealing her own decision in her case where she was petitioning to adopt them. We have not spoken about the other family group in which Tammy Sherrick is the birth mother of the first group of children who Jennifer and Sarah Hart adopted, Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail. This was a biracial situation. The Davis family was African-American. Briefly talk about Tammy Shevrick and some of her issues and why Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail were taken away. Tammy is white, and the fathers of Marcus and Hannah and Abigail are Black. Tammy struggled with mental illness. She struggles currently uh, with mental illness, and she experienced childhood sexual abuse, and some of her mental health issues started really as an adolescent. And so she was institutionalized in state-run mental hospitals as a teen. And after that, she was homeless on and off throughout the time when she was having her children. And so Marcus, he was mostly raised by her grandparents. So Tammy was also raised by her grandparents. And that was the situation for a while. So the reason that the three kids were removed from Tammy was for medical neglect, which was a result of Hannah being really sick and basically needing an ambulance because Tammy didn't have a car, but the ambulance couldn't take her other children. And she had just had Abigail. She was a brand new newborn. And so she was delaying getting Hannah to the hospital because she couldn't figure out how to get someone to watch her other kids or to get, get a ride there, essentially. And the ride that she got ended up being her caseworker, her CPS caseworker. And when they got to the hospital, her caseworker handed her the removal paperwork. So it's another example of, I think Tammy needed a lot more support than she was able to receive. And again, she was treated in a super punitive way. So she not only lost her children, but she was charged with medical neglect and ended up spending time in jail, actually. Her children were taken away, her rights were terminated, and they were put up for adoption. They were listed in this website that you mentioned earlier, and Jennifer and Sarah Hart they were in Minnesota by then, I guess, because they traveled a bit from where the story began. And as you mentioned, they were fast-tracked in this process. For example, you mentioned different laws and things that contribute to the situation. One of them was the Adoption and Safe Family Act of 1997, and that terminates parents' rights if their children have been in foster care for 15 of 22 months. Is that what happened with Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail? Yes, I think that that timeline, that ASFA timeline, really colors the child welfare system's approach to all cases, really, because that timeline is a hard and fast federal rule. 
In Tammy's case, the kids were placed in a foster home in Houston with a black family that Tammy knew. She got to know them and they gave her updates on the kids. And she was under the impression when she terminated her rights that the kids would be adopted by that family and that she would be able to maintain contact with them. So she terminated her rights. And then some, like again, once that happens, you are no longer a party to the case. So they don't let you know anything. And somehow that foster family fell through and they ended up in Minnesota. And Tammy was just totally shocked by that. But also she didn't know where they were. <laughs> they were not with the foster family that she thought they would be going to. And that's all she knew until... The way I got to know Tammy was I reached out to her family six months after the crash because no one knew who they were yet. And their name, their family name was in some investigative records that the sheriff in Washington released. So I essentially told that family that the kids had been murdered because six months had gone by and no official person had thought to call them and notify them. And so they had no idea that it was their children who had died, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they did not know. Essentially, let's, let's not dance around this. If you had not done the incredible work that you did behind the scenes and let them know, it's possible they never would have found out. Is that correct? It's possible, yeah. I mean, I was really shocked when I realized that they didn't know because it had been a big news story, but they had missed it. You know, like they had just missed it. So, I, I mean, yeah, it's possible that they still wouldn't know. I mean, it's really awful to think about. And that was another thing that just, you know, showed me as a person, just like how inhumane the process was. When she did find out Tammy, they actually needed Tammy's DNA because they had found some remains at that point of who they thought might be Hannah and because Hannah and her siblings were half-siblings, the DNA results were inconclusive. So they really needed her mom or her dad. And so Tammy reached out immediately when she found out. She asked how to submit the DNA sample. She did that. And then she was waiting to hear. They got the results. They called her and she missed the call. And then they immediately sent out a national press release confirming that the remains were Hannah's before they ever spoke to Tammy. Now, this was still in the context of Mendocino County being the jurisdiction where the investigation was taking place. And Sheriff Tom Ullman was the sheriff in 2018 while this was going on. He issued a statement saying it was the biggest mass murder in Mendocino County history, which I guess that's not including the Indian genocide. But anyway, regardless... <laughs> An inquest was held. The remains that turned out to be Hannah's will tell us about that and the inquest. And at that process, they were still identifying the children, right? By the time of the inquest, it happened almost a year after the crash. And so by that time, they had identified Hannah through Tammy's DNA. Although in the inquest, they sort of changed it to be like, oh, we sought out this woman and we asked her for her DNA, which is not how it happened. But let me just interject. What we're talking about here that was being investigated was a foot. That's all that remained of Hannah, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Yeah. Because, because they had been searching. So, you know, as I had said earlier, they had found three of the kids immediately at the crash site, but it was hours later because Jennifer had driven the car off the cliff in the middle of the night. And so by the time they had got like figured out how to really get down there and everything, it was the next evening and there had been tides in and out. And so three of the kids were missing and they found two of them, but Devante was never found. And that I think has to do with just the area and the tides and all of that. Let me just interject that if you look on Google Maps for this site, just south of Juan Creek, it's listed there as Devante's Lookout. Mm. You can look it up. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. So continue with the inquest. So the inquest was basically called because it was a case that got a lot of attention and because there was no one to put on trial because Jennifer and Sarah had perished along with the children. So the point of the inquest was to get clarity on exactly what happened. Obviously, no one was charged with anything. So the inquest had its own sort of rules and procedures. But ultimately, the point of the inquest was to ascertain whether one or both of the women did it intentionally. And the inquest found that both women intentionally committed this murder-suicide by drugging the kids with Benadryl and intentionally driving off the cliff. And the official verdict was death at the hands of another other than by accident. Now, you have a problem with that verdict, Roxana. Uh, what, what is your problem with that? And I think there's legal rules to why they say it the way they say it, because murder is a charge, right? A like criminal charge. But taken along with the attitudes from the officials that testified in the inquest, it served to really soften, in my opinion, the murder that took place into this, you know, the, the police officers said stuff like, it was clear that the women got really overwhelmed and the pressures on them just led them to do this thing. It was like a very benefit of the doubt for the women across the board, even though the things that they were revealing in the inquest, like Sarah Hart Googling how much Benadryl will kill a, a such and such pound person and how long does it take to drown it's like just like very awful, morbid, obvious searches that showed that these women planned and executed this murder suicide. The charge was this weird way of saying they killed them, but they didn't just say they killed them. And nobody in the inquest said that. And it also felt very much like they were trying to protect the image of the women, even as they were explaining all the like heinous things that they had done. I believe that at least part of this was trying to be sensitive to the situation. But there was a great deal of insensitivity involved in the overall picture, particularly with the birth families. You end your book talking about the struggle to actually have the cremated remains of their children brought back to them. Explain that situation. 
when the family died, the birth families, again, had no legal rights to their children. So the next of kin were actually the parents of Jennifer and Sarah Hart. So Jennifer and Sarah Hart's parents were the ones who were given the remains of the kids and the women. But Jennifer and Sarah's parents were estranged from them for years, basically ever since they got together as a couple. Neither family knew each other very well at all. And there was this awful, tragic thing that happened. They also didn't know the children. So the birth families had long asked in my first conversations and many times since if they would be able to have some of the remains of their kids. And Doug Hart, who's the father of Jennifer, he wanted to make that happen, essentially. But again, there's no legal channel for this. There's no official way and no one was going to really help them do it. So I essentially helped them do it by coordinating between all of the various families. And I went up to South Dakota and got some of the remains and brought them back to the birth families. Yes, your participation in this, to me, seems extraordinary. It doesn't seem to me to be typical of journalists to go to the lengths that you did to understand the bigger pictures, not just one, but all of them involved, which you share with us in your book, We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death, and Child Removal in America. We're out of time now, Roxana Asgarian. What would you like to leave our listeners with as final words? I hope that if this was interesting that you check out the book because there's a lot more there's a lot more depth to the reporting that's on the page but I really appreciate you taking the time to have such thoughtful questions for me. To me this is a personal issue. I lived in Mendocino County for much of my adult life. I I love the area and I remain horrified by what this is. And, and Roxana, your book helped me a great deal in understanding what I'm calling the bigger picture and the very clear need for non-reform reforms, I guess, is the best way to put it. Do you have anything to share about things like I mentioned of the Mountain Shadow Association or efforts to support families before the children are taken away? I highly recommend the work of Dorothy Roberts to anyone who wants to learn more. There's an organization out of the University of Houston that's called the Upend Movement. And it's about the abolition of the what they call the family policing system. And it's a really good place to start for some more academic research and understanding about what the call for abolition actually means. Well, Roxana Asgarian, thank you very much for this incredible book and your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Of course. Thank you so much again for having me. You have just heard an interview with Roxana Asgarian about her award-winning book, We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death, and Child Removal in America, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Tragic as this story of innocent children taken from their birth families by a child protective service system which purports to protect children, it is but one aspect of our society that does not protect innocent children. Once again, another mass shooting at another school ended in the murder and trauma of children. 
this one at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, which led to protests at the state legislature, the expulsion of two young black representatives, their unanimous reinstatement to represent their districts, and more and more voices calling out the politicians only too happy to maintain the status quo. And as I listen to the eloquent clarity of these two young black legislatures, I mourn the loss of the Hart children, particularly Devante Hart, whose famous photo heard around the world of Devante's tear-streaked face at the age of 14 hugging a white police officer during a tense demonstration protesting the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. He, with his free hugs sign, would have been 20 years old today. What might he have become had his life not been cut short, his body never found? Meanwhile, back in Nashville, the local Fox affiliate was attempting to report on the breaking news story right after the school shooting when a woman, Ashby Beasley of Highland Park, Illinois, interrupted, asking this simple question. Aren't you guys tired of covering this? Aren't you guys tired of being here and having to cover all of these mass shootings? I'm from Highland Park family vacation with my son visiting my sister-in-law. I have been lobbying in D.C. since we survived a mass shooting in July. I have met with over 130 lawmakers. How is this still happening? How are our children still dying and why are we failing them? Gun violence is the number one killer of children and teens. It has overtaken cars. Assault weapons are contributing to the border crisis and fentanyl. We are arming cartels with our guns and our goose loose gun laws. And these shootings and these mass shootings will continue to happen until our lawmakers step up and pass gun safety legislation. We can't even pass gun safety, like safe storage laws in this country to protect kids from getting a hold of weapons that they shoot each other with. My name is Ashby Beasley. I'm from Highland Park, Illinois. I was actually in town just on vacation, but I'm a mass shooting survivor. My son and I survived a mass shooting in Highland Park where there was a shooting at a parade that we were at. We ran for our lives. And this is just unacceptable. It's only in America can somebody survive a mass shooting and then go on vacation to visit another person that they have met through fighting for gun safety and find themselves like near another mass shooting. Like only, you know what I mean? Like only in America does this happen where we keep seeing this again and again and again. You know, only in America does her son survive a mass shooting and then end up in a lockdown school because there is another mass shooting. This is an epidemic. Gun violence is an epidemic. It needs to be, to be resolved. It needs to be addressed. When you hear about it happening at a school again, what, what goes through your... For me, the statistics start running. It, uh, like It's likely this gun was purchased legally. It's likely it was not stored properly. And it, um, I mean, just how preventable this is, how preventable these incidences are, how we should pass gun safety legislation and lock up weapons and put background checks, require background checks on every single gun purchase ban assault weapons. And San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich bashed the, quote, cowardice and selfishness of Republican politicians he called out by name during a passionate pregame speech against gun violence on Sunday, April 9th, 2023. Those legislators called those kids that were protesting insurrectionists. That's hard to believe in America. But America ain't what we thought America was. It's changed. 
So if those kids are insurrectionists, what, what were the people on January 6th? What do we call them? What, what's the next step or word or level of violence after insurrectionists? I, I don't know what it is. What will it take? I'm sure that, you know, people like Josh Hawley and, or, you know, Lindsey Graham or Jim Jordan, whoever of them have kids or nieces or nephews or grandkids. Can they imagine that happening to theirs? Are they incapable of knowing what that's like? I couldn't believe it, so I wrote this thing down. Senator Marsha Blackburn, her, her comment after, after the massacre. My office is in contact with federal, state, and local officials, and we stand ready to assist. In what? They're dead. What are you going to assist with? Cleaning up their brains off the wall? Wiping the blood off the schoolroom floor? What are you going to assist with? And then there's Governor Lee, Bill Lee. I'm closely monitoring the tragic situation. Please join us in prayer. What are you monitoring? They're dead. Children. They're dead. When I pick up my six and 11-year-old grandkids at school, on the way, it goes through my mind that I hope they're going to be okay. And most of you in this room, when we were in school, we worried if Nancy would dance with us on Friday after the football game or something. That was our anxiety. But they're going to cloak all this stuff, you know, the second, the myth of the Second Amendment, the freedom. You know, it's just, it's a myth. It's a joke. It's, it's just a game they play. I mean, that's freedom. Is it freedom for kids to go to school and try to socialize and try to learn? and be scared to death that they might die that day. But Ted Cruz will fix him because he's going to double the number of cops in the schools. That's what he wants to do. Well, that'll create a great environment. Is that freedom? Or is it freedom to have a congressman who can make a postcard with all his family holding rifles, including AR-15 or whatever? Is that cool? Is that like street cred for a Republican? That's freedom? That's more important than protecting the kids? I don't get it. The greed of the gun lobbies and the manufacturers is obvious. We all know that. Money talks. But the cowardice and the selfishness of the legislators who are so scared to death of being primaried and losing their job, losing their power, losing their salary. You'd like to get each one of them in a room just one by one and say, what's more important to you? If you could vote for some good gun safety laws that most of the public agrees to, would you do that if it saved one kid? Or is your job and your money so important to you that you would say, screw the kid? What's what's in your mind? And I think about what, what has changed happened in this country. Can you imagine what John Lewis would be thinking right now if, if he saw this? I can't even imagine what would come out of his mouth. You remember Kent State? Kent State helped us turn against the Vietnam War, which was a big lie. And you saw those kids get killed at Kent State. And then you see the little girl running down the street during the Vietnam War with napalm on her back, burning with napalm, running down. And that's when people got excited. That's when it was real for people. It's not real for us unless you've had a young person get slaughtered because of the inaction of cowardly legislators who are selfish. Civil rights, I mean, there's, you know, black people are having a problem. Whoa, whoa, whoa. When white people saw the dogs and the hoses spread all over TV, public opinion changed because they saw it. Public opinion changed when Mrs. Till opened that coffin so everybody could see what happened to her kid. People paid attention when that cop had his knee on George Floyd's neck. And people who were probably oblivious now, holy shit, is that what's going on? Is that what we have? So what will it take? Do we have to show it? Do we have to show that classroom? That's a pretty big step, right? That's just gross to think about. But do we need to show it? Like the girl running with napalm on her back? They actually see these parents couldn't even tell if it was their kid. They had to go the DNA route. 
Well, that week up, Josh Holly, so he won't be running like this to the whatever they were, insurrectionists, I don't know what the next word would be. These people, they think we're stupid, Republican and Democratic alike, but they might be right, because they get away with that crap. They tell us things about prayers, and their offices are monitoring this stuff, like I said. Get away from me. Stop all the bullshit. Stop talking down to us. We're not stupid, but they will do it to keep their jobs. And here's our kids. And those two black guys in Tennessee, eloquent as they were, <laughs> get expelled because they wanted to help the kids get gun legislation. We got a problem. We got a problem. That's not a country that you can be proud of. And you know we're a laughing stock already. We're incapable of taking care of our own. People in other places shake their heads in other countries. What the hell is going on? God help us all. Headline. Just two days after shooting, Republicans vote to loosen gun law in North Carolina. Headline, child gun deaths rose 50% in just two years, research finds. Headline, Republicans unveil bill to make AR-15 style rifle the national gun. Headline, the GOP embraces the Kyle Rittenhouse approach to kindergarten. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. And you'll also find links to articles, videos, audio referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. <laughs>